Hello and welcome to the latest Forever Blue audio podcast. Thanks very much for your company, really appreciate it. My name is Ian Cheeseman and this is the Forever Blue audio podcast, uh, which means it's all about Manchester City. It doesn't have to mean that, of course, but that's what the title Forever Blue came from. Um, just to explain that I have three guests with me and we mull over all the current City talking points and, uh, and we'll look back at last night's game, look ahead to the future, that sort of thing. And uh, you can subscribe. It's free to subscribe. It's free to download. It's available on the platform SoundCloud. But it's also on iTunes. It's on Spotify and everywhere else you can get your podcasts. Right. Let me just also give a shout out to our sponsors for this podcast, who are Howard Solicitors, who have offices throughout Greater Manchester and Cheshire. They specialise in areas of law that affect the individual. So it's likely that you need some help or guidance, then they'll have somebody I know that can help you. And give them a call on 0161 872 9999. If you missed the number, just spool it back and you can listen to it. Or go onto the website, howardsolicitors.com, and I'm sure that they'll be able to find somebody to help you out. Obviously mention that you heard about it on the Forever Blue podcast. Now, my three guests today, uh, our special guest, my special guest is the one and only Mr. Ned Manua, who has been a fantastic, uh, loyal um, uh, contributor to our podcast for quite some time now. But obviously, since then, he's become a world superstar. He's everywhere now. He's on City TV. He's on national oh, television. He's, he's everywhere. I knew you would be, Nadam. I told you. Oh, gosh. No, Can't no. Things now, are exactly the same. It's exactly the same as last time. Don't even worry about it. But it's good to be back. Well, it's lovely to have you. We also have two members of the Forever Blue uh, team squad, if you like. Um, Adam, uh, Adam W, who we've not had on for a little while, and Andy, who um, are always welcome and always make great contributions. Uh, so thanks to, to the two of you for doing this as well. And now we're speaking the day after City have uh, just beaten Brighton by three goals to one. And actually, we're speaking literally just moments after Arsenal have dropped points at Southampton. So uh, City still, I think, are just behind Arsenal in the title race, but the gap is now closed even more. Um, funnily enough, I was in London because uh, I went, I'd already committed to go to Arsenal uh, before the game was called off. So I uh, took in a couple of theatre shows, booking was uncancelable, so I went down anyway. And as I was buying a burger in Burger King, other burger shops obviously are available. Um, there were two Arsenal fans in the queue in front of me and both wearing resplendently Arsenal shirts. And I said, so and I, I didn't wasn't wearing city colours and obviously didn't know who I was. And I said, so are Arsenal going to win the league this year? The two Arsenal fans said, no, we'd be happy to finish top four. Um, city will win the league. Anybody that finishes above City will win the league. And I thought, well, that's quite refreshing and, and sort of honest. What do you make of that opinion? Let's start with you, Nadam. I mean, you know, that's an Ars Arsenal fans giving honest opinions. Well, you, you say it's honest, but I think it's like half of the truth, which I think is the phrase is to equivocate because they say that City win the league and so on and so forth. But they were at the top. If they would have won today, that's another game down. And we're getting to the point where it's like a third of the season. And they would say, oh, you know, City are going to finish where they're going to finish. But they're handling business. They Before today, like, they'd won, was it 90% of the games or whatever? It's... It's an exceptional run that they've been on. And it's not just the case of, you know, just being maybe six, seven games unbeaten. It's the fact that they're winning so many of these matches. And that's why, you know, for as good as City have been overall and say the Mexican people saying how well City were playing, the caveat was always that they were in second behind Arsenal. So Arsenal very much deserved to be there. And, you know, this game for them, it might be a blip and so on, but it's going to be a tough season. But why would they not believe that they can win the league? Maybe some of it's like, 
a sense of being jaded through disappointments which they've experienced. Like it was only towards the end of last season when they were all set to finish in the top four. Then I think they lost away at Newcastle, then lost the next game or something, and they, they fell off. But throughout the situation, is they're up there for a reason. They didn't do it by accident. And as far as winning the league goes, like every time we want to praise Arsenal, they always say, oh, no, 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 don't don't praise us. No, don't praise us too much. But then if you don't praise them, say, why does nobody respect us? So they're kind of caught in between both stalls. But this is it. If you're, right, if you're at the top and say you're ahead of Man City, the scrutiny is going to be on you. Can you handle it? And unfortunately for some of those fans, they don't really know how to act or how to be because it's been a long time since they were, say, so dominant. When Spurs went to United in midweek, there were a few people um, asking me how I thought they'd go on. And, and I said, well, whenever Tottenham go to United, they always lose. They always lose the bottle. That, that's, that's, that's their personality. And it's the same something about Arsenal that makes me think they won't have the staying power. Now, I know we're Blues and I know you're dyed in the wall. Uh, Nadam, you know, you're not just a, mm. you know, but you played for the club, so you know you're a City fan. You are a proper City fan. I don't know. Mm. You've got that DNA, you know, where you're a little bit cautious of being sounding arrogant. We all have. We all have. But you've got to look at Arsenal and you've got to think they're not going to stay the course. I mean, I know they're still top <laughs> as we speak. Um, I think it depends on the nature of the course because one thing to be sort of very cautious about this year is the fact that the World Cup's in there. And we don't know how teams are going to be reacting, say, in the, the build-up to it in the next few weeks. And then also when they come back. Because I think for some, if the impact of the World Cup is similar to what it was like, say, for the Euros for City two summers ago. Or was it last summer? Yeah, last summer. Or a year ago, last summer. They had loads of players who made it to the final four of that tournament. So as a consequence, when they came back in, they didn't have full pre-seasons. They didn't have as much time as, say, other teams would have had with, say, the vast majority of the players all being available. And there is an understanding that no, from when the World Cup's over and teams come back, that's it now. The real tough part of the season kicks on. There's just so many variables. You don't know how long your player's going to be away for. Don't know how the ones who aren't away are going to be coping. Can you really prepare for that next stage? Like, it's probably going to be easier for teams who have no international players in that time off than, say, for the ones that do, because you're juggling so, so much. And then you add in that sort of emotional element as well. And I know that I don't like to go too big and be too brass. And it's because, you know, for 16 years, the moment you said something that seemed even slightly derogatory against another side, before you know it, you've added them, added that 1% more inspiration for when they want to play against you or what they want to do. So I'm very, very reluctant to go too big, but everyone knows City are class apart. But the fact is, if a team is ahead of them at any point, especially at this time in the season, then they deserve to be there. And you know whether or not they can maintain that form, I don't know. But the, but the start that they've had has sort of like increased their margin of error to the point whereby they can afford to not win a game and still be top. And knowing that going into the next game, if they do win, they will remain top. And that's a nice spot to be in, especially given the, the nature of the team that's behind you, Jason. Before I get Andy and Adam to come in and comment, there's one other factor that it certainly occurs to me that City's game against Spurs was never fulfilled and is now going to be in the second half of the season, as is that trip to Arsenal, which I travelled down for and never happened. So those two games are going to happen. So we've got back-to-back, -back, I don't mean literally back-to-back, -back, obviously, but back-to-back -back games against Arsenal, back-to-back -back games against Spurs, back-to-back -back games against Chelsea, plus the latter stages of the Champions League, plus the FA Cup. It's going to be some January you know, to May. That is mm. that necessarily... A good thing? Uh, would you have preferred those two games to have been played? I know that those were beyond City's control, but would it have been better if those two games have been played already? Uh, I think for me, when you mentioned those two games against those two sides, those two sides are also going to be in Europe as well. 
So in terms of the sheer workload that they have to go through, it's not just a City-specific issue. So all the teams will have to manage that as well. And I think given the, the fact that City, you know, are used to playing 60 games a year, playing three games a week throughout, I'd sort of favour them to be able to manage that situation probably a bit better than, say, those two other sides. It doesn't guarantee a result. But at the end of the day, City playing big games, and they always play in big games come the end of the season because that's how successful they are. So I would, you know, it would be nice if they'd played them in this first half of the season and they'd won the games and so on and so forth. But the reality is the game still remains. And it's just a tougher fixture for Spurs and Arsenal as it is for City. So, you know, I, I, you don't you don't make money betting against City. Let's just say that. And the belief is that they're more than capable in terms of doing it. And the fixture backlog is definitely going to be there, but it works for both sides. Arsenal and Spurs aren't going to have a week off and then play City. It'll be the same situation, the same sort of rotating, rotation idea, the same level of importance for the game. And I suppose the upside really, you know, from a City persuasion is that City have played in more big games in the last couple of years than Spurs and Arsenal have. So as a consequence, as they approach it, I think they'll have a better understanding of how to do it, which might end up being that little edge that you need in terms of getting the result come the end of the year. You've listened intently to that, Adam. Um, let's get your reaction to the subjects we've talked about and and the words of wisdom that have come from, uh, from Nadam. Yeah. Well, on the subject of whether all the fixtures being in that post-World Cup period is good or not. I think obviously it depends on whether you're in form or not. So, um, you know, you could have your best vein of form right before the World Cup. But if that's in a run of fixtures where you'd expect us to be smashing teams anyway, then that's not so advantageous. But um, if you hit a really good run of form in, you know, February after people have sort of recovered from the World Cup, and then you're playing those big games, then, you know, that's great. Um, City usually hit a really good run of form in those final few months of the season, you know, we've seen us see off title rivals by winning, you know, X amount of games on the bounce, uh, double figures um, towards the end. And like Nadam said, you know, we uh, more than anyone know how to deal with that fixture pile up. And I think our squads are a lot, our squad is a lot more strong than the other two as well. You look at Arsenal, they've got a brilliant starting 11 um, and there's some great players in there who you think, you know, would, would really no push into our squad. Um, but, when you look at their bench and if they were to get a few injuries to say, you know, Odegaard, Saka, if Partey wasn't there, how are they going to deal with those sort of players being out? I think if we were to have those important players out, <clears throat> we can replace them. Um, I think we can still put on a decent run of form. So I'd much rather be battling against Arsenal and Tottenham uh, for the title than I would uh, a full strength Liverpool team like we were last season. So I just hope that um, when we do hit our our tough spell um, that Tottenham and Arsenal can't quite keep pace, even if we're not quite to our best. You make a couple of very interesting points there, Adam, which I'm going to circle back to in a moment. But I want to bring Andy, first of all, in to hear what he's got to say. So let's give us your verdict, Andy. Yeah, well, I think um, one thing's for sure is it doesn't look like a two-horse race. So let's not talk about Arsenal or City. I think there's uh, there's enough already after what, 11 games to suggest that there's a top sort of four um, emerging, maybe five, um, that it's not it's not run away. Our away form hasn't been as good as it was last season. Um, and, and don't forget yesterday we played probably one of the toughest away teams outside of the top. I think they're, I think they're sixth or seventh best in the away uh, rankings, Brighton. I thought that was a great result. So I think Pep said it yesterday, the, the season starts in December. So all we've got to do now is be, the, be in the mix. We're in the mix. Qualify at the Champions League, ideally as 
the top team, and that's within our power and grasp, maybe even already this week. And so whether Arsenal are firing on all cylinders or not, I think the difficulty they've got, um, notwithstanding the lack of a big game experience that Nadem referred to, is we've never seen a Europa League winner win the Premier League. And I think that competition is a major factor. When you just said about the fixture congestion, that Thursday, Sunday is a nightmare as a supporter, never mind uh, as a player. So I think that's got to be against Arsenal and perhaps 20 years nearly since they've won the Premier League is a bit too long for the younger Arsenal. I don't know how old those Arsenal fans were that you spoke to, but probably in reverse to our younger fans who expect us to be they haven't seen their team win the Premier League, probably unless they're 40 years old or something like that. So I think those factors will, will, will come into play definitely with um, with Arsenal specifically uh, in, in the second half of the season to, I hope, our advantage. Just to explain those two fans, one of them was probably just a little bit younger than me and his son. So they were a cross of, of two different generations. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the point that Adam made, which which I'll pick up now and, and run with a little bit, is, you know, you're saying that if Saka, Jesus, you know, and key players get injured, and this is actually, you know, a topic that we need to explore, really, is that have City now, and, we, you know, every time Erling Haaland goes out there, you're expecting him to score two, three goals. He's a phenomena, you know, I mean, we've never seen anything quite like it, the impact that he's making early on. But now that the, the strength in depth, i.e. Jesus, Sinchenko, Raheem Sterling has gone, I know players have come in to replace them numerically, but they were top quality players, in my opinion. All three of them, actually. Uh, I was sad to see all three of them go. Um, have City got the same strength in depth? What happens if, uh, what happens if the... The key player, i.e. Erling Haaland and Kevin De Bruyne, those two get injured. Do you, do you worry? Do you, obviously, Adam, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth here, but I'm assuming you won't worry about that as much, whereas last season, when we didn't rely on two players quite as much, perhaps it, it would have been less concerning. You know, give, give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, now we talk about it, you know, it does worry me, you know. Haaland hasn't got the greatest injury record. We've managed to manage it so far. But if he was to get injured, then maybe it, it would cause an issue. I, I was listening to an interview with Kevin De Bruyne the other day, and it, he seems to play down the importance of um, having sort of a striker and it being completely different to how we could play last season. I'd like to think that having a striker just gives us a, an extra dynamic. So if we were to lose Haaland, we can go back to playing how we did last season. Hopefully we've still got that fresh in fresh in the mind from last year and we would just if we needed to we'd revert to a false nine and we maybe we'd play Alvarez there and he's really fluid just like Jesus is so he would become the Gabriel Jesus if you like play wide play up top so I'm hoping that if we were to come under that that sort of issue where we don't have our proper striker then hopefully we'll just go back to how we did last year and we, we didn't do, do too bad did we so um hopefully that would just we'd be just fall into place obviously De Bruyne is great but I think you know, we've done great without De Bruyne in spells in the past. We've had periods where De Bruyne has been out for a couple of months um, in, in previous seasons, and we've done really well. We've won the title in two of those where he was he was not available for a couple of months, at least, um, around January. 
in both of those seasons. So I think we can replace him with the quality that we've got in midfield, um, which might not, be, not, might not be battering teams, but I think we'll get through it. So I think we are much more prepared than those teams. And I think Pep's tactical now, so he just, he's able to find ways um, to cover those cracks and, and get over it. So I, I'm pretty confident, but obviously it's a worry. Are you as confident, Nadim, that if something happens to those two players that City have the same level of strength in depth that they, numerically, of course, they have, but the same level of quality strength in depth? Yeah, I think uh, I'm with Adam. I think if, say, De Bruyne or Haaland or whatever got injured, then I think the ceiling drops down a little bit, but the ceiling drops down to where it was last year, where they won the league and the year before, basically. You know, they're more than capable of winning games of football without having to look the way that they look right now, especially because if they go towards, um, say, maybe a false nine or putting somebody a bit different in there, then we go back to the times whereby you see them control games that little bit more. I think when you have Haaland in the side, for as good as he is, you know, at times they don't feel like they can fully control it in certain ways like they were, like they used to in the past. And, you know, that might make some people feel uncomfortable and so on and so forth. But they have, the City are very, very good. And in Pep Guardiola, he's a fantastic manager. He sees it, tactically understands it and can make changes on the fly that will make a difference. I think, for example, yesterday within that game, you know, they're going man-to-man Brighton. It's catching, it caught City off guard because it's not something they can really prepare for when they've not seen Brighton do it before. But then next thing, Edison plays the ball through and Haaland's running through one-on-one because that exploited the sort of weakness in in sort of going man-to-man, which Brighton did. So I think they are, they are adaptable. You wouldn't want them to be injured. But in some ways, the positive for this general conversation for me is that I think... Um, a lot of people who see Arsenal at the top of the tree, they're always looking for reasons why they believe that they won't stay there. And the first thing they say is, what happens if they have injuries? What happens if anyone has injuries? Like the ceiling will drop, but it's a case of, are they still capable of winning games? And for Arsenal, if Jesus gets injured, if, say, Saka gets injured and so on, they could still beat the vast majority of teams in the Premier League with, the, with them performing at their absolute best. And realistically, like, you know, we've seen for the last few years, and you know, this is a common misconception. I think we've, I've mentioned this before on here. You don't necessarily solely get to 90 points in a season from just beating the people in the top six. Like you have to be beating everybody else who everyone expects you to beat. Come the end of the season, if you're up there and in the mix, it's because you've beaten that bottom 10, those bottom 10 teams maybe twice over, home and away. That's 60 points there waiting for you. And those games against the the sort of the matchups coming the end of the year against the teams which feel like six pointers, they're great, but they're only great because you've put in the work elsewhere. And lo and behold, the teams who've fallen behind, saying title races in the past. You're never really thinking, oh, it's because they lost to Chelsea in February. It's because they went on a run where they only got one win from three games against three sides where they could have or should have been getting points. And then a team, another team has now maximised all that. And that's essentially what Arsenal have done. And so, you know, Pep said the season starts in December, and I get that. But a season is in a better position if you do well in this first section where you're just trying to crew the points that you have. And that's what City are doing. That's what Arsenal are doing. And other teams are in there as well. So I think from an injury standpoint, I think it's in some ways probably best to expect injuries. And if you don't have them, that's a bonus. But I think when you look at City and the way that they play and the people that they have in there, I, I don't know, maybe this is a hot take, but the players are obviously delighted to have Haaland in there. But I think at times they don't have an understanding of how to play without him. And so some of the decisions and stuff that they make, they're still adapting to him. Whereas if he wasn't there, they wouldn't need to make the adaptation because they've basically perfected a style of football in the previous two years, which they basically brought back two Premier League titles with and a Champions League final as well. So as uh, Adam was saying, I think it was Adam, the, the Haaland thing is like an addition as opposed to the only way in which they can do things. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why if you're a City fan, you can 
be very optimistic because you know that everything doesn't stop if one person goes down. City's performance against Brighton, I would say, wasn't as good as as we've seen from the Blues before. Some of, some of that might have been to do with Brighton, but I also thought they slightly misfired in that game and weren't quite as good as we've seen before. Um, but you're right, you know, they still won the game 3-1. You know, and you look at Arsenal, they've dropped two points at Southampton. Liverpool have lost at Nottingham Forest. Uh, Spurs lost at United. So all games that they might have expected to win against weaker teams. <laughs> United being one of those weaker teams. Um, but it is it is about having that sort of run of not slipping against the weaker team. City have got three Premier League games now before the break. Leicester, who are on a bit of a turn of form. Uh, Brentford and Fulham. And Fulham have got a couple of decent results. But you'd still presumably expect City to win those three games before the World Cup, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah of course. And... Um... I'd say I'm so torn because I try and be as respectful as I can be. But then you look at the matchups and you know that, well, you don't know this, but I believe that if City play the best, they can beat anybody on planet Earth. And then there are some sides where City also don't need to be at the best to win. For example, Brighton yesterday. I thought Brighton were exceptional for what they tried to do. But then City had that quality to make a difference. And that's going to be the case against Leicester. It's going to be the case against Brentford, the case against Fulham. Those three teams could perform to their best and still lose to City if City are anywhere near it at all with the sort of clinical nature that they have, the big game understanding. The sort of, like this year, we've seen them play really well and get results. We've seen them play not so well, get results. You've seen them go down and get a result. You've seen them go up and just destroy teams. You know, they can, at this moment in time, they can do it all. So whenever they're on the field, they have a belief that they can go and beat anybody. So in that, you're not going to say, well, I fancy them to drop points here, to drop points there, because for the players themselves, that's not even anywhere near their mind. They're going out there with a plan of how to beat any particular team in the way that's required on that particular day. So, you know, nine points for them is what they want and it's what they expect, but not because the other teams aren't good enough, but because of how good they can be when they perform to their best with the talent and the management and the tactical knowledge that the players have and the manager has as well. What did you learn from that game yesterday, Andy? Did you learn anything new that you hadn't seen before or hadn't thought about before watching City? Well, I, I took from it that... Um, couple of things first is that what's concerning me a little bit is that with Shepard took in Riyad Mahrez early more than more than we should his mentality obviously he's, he missed the goal he missed the penalty against Copenhagen so I think I learned that yesterday he's struggling to stay at the level that's expected of him um, so I hope that turns around because because as we said before we can't be relying on Harlan the monster um, yeah if we've only only just got adjusting to him. What are we going to be like when we're at full tilt? Um, I do notice, however, that we are seeing now players look for him, which is something new, and you see it more and more um, at the home games where we where we definitely create more chances for him. And there's a worry, obviously, that we've become a little bit dependent on that. Perhaps that's something that you know we should be watching out for over the next few games. But in the end, the quality is why we won yesterday, and that is De Bruyne and and Haaland largely uh, responsible for probably the first and last goals were, you know, with with a great assist coming for the first, they were down to those two individual players' drive to to put the ball in the back of the net. And I think that if we'd have played Brighton without them two last season, it might not have ended the same. You know, I think in the second half, 
Brighton were, were looking good for this for the next goal for for a good twenty minutes yesterday. Um, you know, and I, and I felt that you know we needed that third goal just to just to build up enough cush- uh, the cushion up. So we're not we're not comfortable at two one. Um, I think that's still something that um, you know against against quite a few teams. Uh, we're we're a little bit nervous, a little bit edgy, um, and I think the crowd then start to get a little bit nervous. And there's calls for Pep to start doing something around the hour mark, and why hasn't he done anything yet? And I don't I don't know whether Adam picks that up or you Ian or or through the through the headphones, uh, Nadem can pick it up in the, in the crowd around him. But you know there is an expectation now, um, especially at home. That, that we are putting teams to the sword and it isn't going to be that easy all the way through this season and it's not always the teams you expect these well organized sides who've given us trouble villa and newcastle um i, I think brighton were good for a draw yesterday to be honest but quality came through so I, I think i think what we learned is that we've still got some players who i don't think have got the the mentality that that, that we need for the latter stages of, of the Champions League. I think we'll learn that more as the season goes on. But um still happy that Arsenal haven't haven't gained any ground on us today and that there's only a two point gap going going into this week. So yeah. I do believe the, the biggest game we've played this season so far was the trip to Liverpool. I mean, I know there's the derby. I know we played Dortmund once already, but I would argue that the, the trip to Liverpool was the biggest. And obviously, we haven't played Tottenham, we haven't played Arsenal, we haven't mm. played Chelsea. And in that game, um, a, a lot's been made. I've certainly seen a lot made of the fact that Jack Grealish didn't start that game. And there were some quotes, I don't know whether they're accurate enough, saying that he wasn't too chuffed that he didn't start that game. He started against Brighton, so I thought if those quotes are right and he was a little bit disenfranchised, he will be really up for it today. I watched the start of the game and uh, he seemed to be playing in a more freer central role to begin with and did one fantastic run where he went past about three or four different players. Nothing in the end came from it, but it was thrilling to watch. And then as the game went along and Brighton came more and more into the game, because they, as we saw afterwards, I think had 52% of possession overall in the 90 minutes. So they certainly were prepared to go, not toe-to-toe, because that's the wrong expression, but you know, they were prepared to try to out-football City in terms of passing and movement and whatnot. And they did it quite successfully. And as that started to happen, Grealish seemed to drift back to the left again and go back into that area that he's been playing in. And I didn't know whether that was because he had chosen to do that, Pep had chosen him to do that, whether that was just his comfort zone. Well, then, I, And then eventually he got took off and he didn't have the impact in the game that I thought he would. He's still a player that, that you know, we're going to talk about as fans and as journalists and as, as uh, you know, pundits and whatnot, all season, I'm sure, because of the price tag and because of the type of guy he is with the, you know, he draws attention to himself that, that you know, got his socks rolled down, he's got the headband and he, he's everybody notices and obviously that price tag plays into that a little bit. So I just wonder whether, what, what your thoughts are as to whether Pep did leave him out of the Liverpool game deliberately and he doesn't trust him in big games, whether he should have done better in his opportunities today and, and the way that he drifted out, whether I imagine that or whether you, you were very analytical, I'm sure, in your, your job watching the game professionally, Nadam, so maybe perhaps you've got an even better insight because I've 
just watching it as a fan these days. You know, mm. what 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 is the the deal with with Jack Grealish in your opinion? Um, in regards to the Liverpool game, I think um, Pep sometimes just prefers certain bodies in certain positions when he wants to make it tactically different. Because say if you've got Bernardo Silva, if you've got Jack Grealish, they're two completely different styles of player. And one might have more of a tendency to say maybe come inside and you know be more of a two-way player in a midfield battle, whereas the other wants to essentially go and take people on. But taking people on, like that's obviously one of his strengths. And I think at times in that game yesterday against Brighton, he sort of maximised it when the game was more open, which came from maybe a turnover by Brighton where City pressed quite well up high, or there was a big switch of play and he can start running direct. Whereas I think sometimes in the games whereby you can never really get on the other side of the people you're playing against then some of these extra touches and alike, they're not really of the most value. And as a consequence, you don't see him at his best because it's time, those ones where you need to move it quickly. But I think, you know, I have to give, I have to give Brighton credit and to pick up on sort of like Andy's point before about a sense of nervousness, nervousness in the stadium. I think that is there and that was right. But I think some of that comes because I think within football, and this is all across the board, you have a really deep understanding of your own team, but a very superficial one of the opposition. Yet still, it's a team that's in the Premier League that's been there for a good few years that are very settled in their style of play regardless of the fact they've got a different manager and they all know what they're doing. And they, the look they gave City yesterday in terms of going man-to-man, like that's a really tough look because basically that's probably the game where Edison had more touches than at any point in his career. And the reason he did is because he's the only person that wasn't being man-marked. So when he then gets the ball and he looks up and he looks around, everybody's got someone right next to them and that there is a real quandary because, you know, in the end, he played the ball to Haaland and that's great. But you can't continually do that all the time because one thing that I thought City weren't great at yesterday is that if they did play a ball at him, whether it was a little dink ball, they weren't, because they've not really practiced it, and this is understandable, you didn't have players flooding underneath to try and get the second ball. So it ended up just being like an old school ball forward, flick on or whatever. And so that doesn't necessarily suit their style. So Brighton were good. And I think defensively, they were very good and very organised. In the first half, it was March and development who were up against him on that side they were very very well drilled uh in terms of understanding where to be where to go and every time he received the ball it was under pressure to the point where they slowed him down and his impact sort of left the, his initial huge impact kind of left the game and i think in terms of him coming inside one thing i saw for the way they played that the city definitely played with width but sometimes it was Grealish, sometimes it was cancelo and then the times when cancelo came inside Grealish was on it was on the outside but then when he received it he's got somebody on his back straight away and he's not got the space to be able to meander, go left and go right, because essentially the touchline is behind him. So I think he's right to be disappointed to not play in the game like Liverpool. But at the end of the day, like, this is the way it is. All the players we play for Man City shouldn't expect to play every single game. And I think at times there are sort of nuances in terms of what sort of team Pep would pick over another. Like, let's go back three, four weeks or a month or whatever it was, and you were seeing Ruben Diaz sitting on the bench against Manchester United in the uh in the in the derby and you're like oh how's this a thing well six years later that well this is why it's a thing because this is what he wanted in this particular game so i think he's right to be disappointed but i think in some ways he has to understand this is the system that it is and then he also has to realize that the way that people defend against him and against defend against man city at certain times requires you to have a sort of different impact in some ways and i thought yesterday every time city could inject pace into the attack it looked far better than brighton that was case in point for say um, for the penalty, 
Bernardo plays it's Cancelo makes a dart in behind it's an incredible ball by Cancelo penalty for the Kevin De Bruyne goal Bernardo gets a ball from Cancelo again and he starts driving at the defense and he plays a great ball to De Bruyne perfect touch incredible finish but those bits of injection of pace and excitement is really what's off what upsets the opposition and I think for Jack the more times you can realize mm-hmm. and try and figure out ways to do that to the game the bigger the impact I think you'll have you're not going to like this question, then. In fact, you're not going to you're not going to answer it. I don't think, given that you, because I want to talk about individual players now and again. That's part of the fun of, of talking about football. But from what your answer you've just given there, you know, it's, it's about the opposition, it's about the manager, it's about the moment, etc. But if hypothetically mm. you were picking mm-hmm. City's strongest eleven right now to play a crucial game, would Jack Grealish be in it? Um, do you know what the, the opposition I think would matter but if it was to be like a proper 4-3-3 when you wanted the wingers to go and take people on then I think I would pick him and I think um, it's not necessarily because he's had a great start to the season but say if it was him on the left and Foden on the right or something like that I like the fact that those two players will be taking it directly to the fullbacks and I, you know I think Phil Foden's incredible so I think he has to start and at this moment you know, you think it is a toss-up between Mares and Grealish for the other spot, but I think Grealish on the left, I, I, like I get it, I understand it, and I think what, the look that Brighton gave City yesterday is one which they won't come across very much this season, if at all, for probably the rest of their careers. So I think I would lean that way, but then in the same breath, I have no idea what goes on in Pep Guardiola's mind. He sees things which I've never seen before, so I wouldn't want to speculate too much. But yeah, I think the way I saw him play against, say, Man United with Phil on the other side and the way they were going. That was one of the most exciting periods of football, that first 20 minutes that I've seen at Man City. And I think he has that within him. And so if they needed that again, I think he'd be capable of doing it. Well, at least you answered it. Thank you. <laughs> you, <laughs> could you, have eas- you could have easily said, no, 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 no. I answered it in a previous question. So let's bring no, the other no. two in then. Adam, um, Jack Grealish. I'll just put question mark and let you go say whatever you want to say. I think um, his form's improved. Definitely. I think in terms of yesterday, when City played well, he was playing well. So although he went, you know, you could say he went missing for the period before he was taken off, it was like, yeah, so did City. Like, we didn't look good for um, when, when they got there uh, first, uh, when they got the only goal they scored. They looked great. They looked like they were going to get an equaliser more than we were going to get the third. So I think um, Grealish played well yesterday in the periods that City played well. Um, and I think Grealish, he's looked really good since... He came under scrutiny about a month ago when he had a, a really bad um, night. I think was it in Europe, perhaps. Um, but since then, I think he's really kicked on. After that first minute goal uh, in the Prem a few weeks ago, I think he's looked really good. Um, I think Pep's tried to play into his hand a little bit more by um, allowing him to come inside a bit more. He seems to get a bit lost out on the wing sometimes. Um, I think not having an attacking fullback that will overlap him um, is sort of hindering him this season. I was hoping we'd get career over the line so that he'd be running down the wing and then Grealish should be able to drift in. But with Cancelo playing that inverted fullback role, you've sort of got to have the winger out wide um, to fill in that space, I feel. So it's Grealish is sort of being left out there, um, sacrificed, if you like, um, to allow the others to shine. And I think that's been the case over the past few seasons. You've looked at like... Gundogan having that season where he scored loads of goals. Uh, Bernardo last season scoring lots of goals. 
the number eight's really shine in the system that we've played over the few years. And that's because the wide men have been stretching out wide to allow the space for the midfield uh, eights to come forward. It seemed that way anyway. And that's why I felt like Foden hasn't been making as many goal contributions as he uh, as we'd have liked to have done over the past season and a half because he's been out wide when he's been playing rather than being central. So I think Grealish has been, um, I don't know, he's been a victim of the system quite a bit and um, he'll, he'll often get double ups on that side and all he can do is pass it back to an eight uh, rather than take people on. Um, and the only time he does get to really run at people is is when it's a quick turnover, like we saw yesterday against Brighton. So, yeah, I feel a bit sorry for him in a way, but I guess maybe Pep's realised now um, he needs to give him a bit more more freedom to come inside. I noticed in a, couple, uh, a few games ago, Bernardo Silva started to take out the wide position and allow Grealish to come inside. So even though when the game started, Grealish was out wide, but then they'd switch over and they uh, did, did allow him to come inside a bit more and someone else would take that wide position. So I think Pep's maybe realised that to get the best out of Grealish, you perhaps need to bring him in a bit more centrally when we've got the ball. But then when we're on the counter-attack, you know, let him go out wide. So I think it's about us learning about how to get the best out of Grealish and then also Grealish learning how to get the best out of us having all the ball and um, and not being on the counter all the time. I think it took Mahrez quite a while to get used to that because obviously he came from a, a flying Leicester team who'll get the ball and bring it forward dead fast. But he came to City and there's suddenly two men on him and he's facing two bank, two banks of four. Um, so I think it's, really, it's a real difficult um, change to go from Villa to play at City. But I'm, I'm hoping that it will come in, in time because obviously Mares has had incredible spells in his team. So I'm hoping that he'll be able to do the same. And I'm confident that he will do. I think it will work out, but I think it might just take a bit more time. What an interesting answer. And when I introduce the next subject that I want to talk about, you'll think that Adam's given me the idea again because he seems to be on the wavelength of where I'm going with all this. <laughs> but, but just before I do, Andy, um, Jack Grealish. Looking sharp. When when uh, when you watch him, he looks like he's put the effort in, uh, getting himself in top condition. The last games, I think he wasn't lucky not to have a crack at Milner. He'd have had a yellow card off him within within half an hour, I'm sure of it. So I think um, persisting with Foden against Milner at Anfield, in my opinion, was uh, a mistake because I think that he was definitely struggling to get any anything out of James Milner. And I think Grealish might have had more fun. Um, but yeah, he cuts in, he looks great. And then it sort of gets a bit stuck with all of the uh, banks of four um, that, that, that are around him. And often, and a bit frustrating for me, is he'll pull the ball out left. Usually Cancelo or Bernardo's hanging out there. And this happened yesterday with a well-organised defence. The crosses get blocked quite a lot. So a lot of that sort of stuff getting channelled down, down that left side, you just feel as though maybe once in a while, just to just to run at the defence and until you're kicked over, which we know he's good at, or even uh, unleash one. Uh, I think it would be nice to see him be a bit more direct. Otherwise, I'm I'm pretty pleased with the way he's come on. And would I pick him in the first eleven? I think I would. I think he's he's got that that possibility of creating something, um, and he wants to clearly show that. So. Um, yeah, progress is good, but I'm sh I'm sure that Pep will want more more from him. The other player I was going to mention, uh, individual, is um, Jao Cancelo, who obviously Adam mentioned there about the overlapping and everything, and you mentioned too. 
Um, I, I'm not going to name who it was because it would be unfair, but I was speaking yesterday um, to somebody that, that wasn't on the vlog, by the way, so don't try and second guess who it was. But I did speak to somebody, a former coach, uh, you know, a big, big name coach who said to me that um, Cancelo was a liability. That, you know, it was for all his fancy touches and the outside of his foot and his creativity defensively, he blamed him for what happened at Real Madrid. Um, and he obviously made the mistake last week at Liverpool and that defensively he wasn't impressed with him at all. Um, he is a right-footed left-back. That in itself might not be a problem. You obviously have a much better grasp on this, Naden, being a defender than any of us could possibly have because you, you've played at the top level as defender. Um, so I'd be just curious to know what your thoughts are on Joe Cancelo, who, in my opinion, is a lovely footballer to watch. Um, a real team player. There's lots of positives in him, but I can sort of understand where this unnamed coach is coming from. So what's your take on that, Nadam? So how old's the uh, unnamed coach, roughly? Give me just an age band. Uh, I don't know, 30s, 40s, something like that. Really, just that young? Because one thing I would say about him, I think he's perceived in two different ways based on sort of your perception of football. And one thing I'd say is like, the way he defends is unorthodox. But I was watching him very carefully in the game yesterday, especially given the mistake which he made. And it's a high-profile mistake because it essentially led to the game-winning goal against Liverpool Anfield. <laughs> Listen, I've, I've done that myself. Quite a few people have done that. You do make mistakes within football. But in terms of being in the right position, in terms of like having a desire to run back, I was seeing it and he was doing it because you think, well, how did he defend yesterday? Well, who was the person he was up against? You, can you name who it is, Ian? I couldn't because I was I was watching it from like a fan does, just watching it from a city perspective. I bet you'd be able to have named them if that person was having a bigger impact in the game. Possibly, the fact is, yeah. But the fact yeah, is, possibly. they weren't because in the first half, I think it was Solly March who did nothing. But then the second half, March went to the other side and Lamptey came on. Mm. But did Lamptey actually do anything of great significance when he came on, apart from give you the sort of feel and illusion of great threat? There was not that much that happened when you really try and think about it. Like the Trossard goal came from the other side as well. So it's not defensively. When he does a good job, it doesn't get mentioned because he, the thing that he does, it's the little details. And say, for example, when the guy that's, you know, playing, everyone says she'll be playing right back for England. Some of the problems that he has, some of it's just desire because he knows how to defend, but sometimes just doesn't defend. Like I think there was a game recently for them. I think it was in Naples. And someone skipped past him and then he just stood and watched for the next 10, 15 seconds as somebody went through and scored. Like Cancelo, he doesn't, he doesn't have that. He's attempting to do it. And because he's a right-footed left-back, some of the stuff that he does will always not suit your eye because you're not used to seeing it. Some of the ways he tried to intercept balls with the outside of his foot or this, that and the other. Not you shouldn't necessarily pay attention to like, is that fundamentally right? But more so like, did it stop the attack? And the answer is a lot of times it's yes. Him taking extra touches, it makes you feel uncomfortable. But that's his character. And the players around him trust him. Otherwise, they tell him to kick it away. So I think in terms of defensively, he's very unorthodox. He's not the best defender on the face of planet Earth. But he does want to defend. And if you really look at the way he does play in the games, especially yesterday, he's there. Every time his winger was coming up against him, he's not diving in. He's standing up. And what this is, this is like the really, really important detail now. Playing against Tariq Lamptey, Lamptey wants to run down the line. His second option, he'll come inside, try and put it in left foot cross, but you'll accept that. You'll give him the inside left foot cross. Cancelo played him a yard, two yards off him to try and say, try and run down the line and here I am. So as a consequence, Lamptey never went down the line against him. 
Lancy goes down the line against everyone. So in that moment itself, you're seeing that Cancelo's done his research to know the person he's playing against and he's trying to take away their biggest strength. But we don't notice it because we remember the mistake he made against Liverpool. So I'm not going to defend him and say he's the best defender in the world. But as is the case with all those other players, like these are really good footballers and the defenders are really good defenders. And Vermey does it differently, but he does it nonetheless. And I think there are lots of other defenders in air quotes out there who don't really take any interest in defending whatsoever and they're quite lazy with it, but he's definitely not that. And the coach that says he's a liability, if he was a liability, City be conceding 50 goals a season, but still they don't. And the whole reason they're defensively strong is because they defend as a unit from front to back. And he is just as much a part of that as the next person. So realistically, the person saying it is fine. They're entitled to their own opinion. But if they couldn't defend, Pep wouldn't have them in the team. Because as you look from front to back, everybody has a job to do. And they've all done it exceptionally well for the seven years that Pep's been in charge. What about Adam's comment about um, when you talk about an overlapping fullback, Adam, I presume you would not, you, you name Cucurella and, uh, as a left-footed, overlapping left fullback. Um, so I'm assuming, therefore, the fact that um, Cancelo is predominantly a right footer. I know he can use his left foot, but he's predominantly a right footed player, means that he wouldn't overlap as well as you might want him to. Is that is that what you were saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, the system, it appears to be that Cancelo sort of comes inside. Cancelo's almost like an extra midfielder um, when he plays, whereas I would want an all out sprinting fullback to be going past Jack. Mendy. A Mendy. Side. Yeah, me, yeah, basically exactly why we bought uh, Benjamin Mendy. Um, yeah, I, I wanted a player like that to come in to allow Grealish to to pop inside and, and occupy a defender because I just feel like Grealish gets doubled up on all the time over there. But may, maybe that's not true because someone has to look after Cancelo, of course. But it just seems like that from the eye that um, he's sort of on his own out there and he needs someone to come next to him and and give it give the defender someone else someone else to look after. So what's your thoughts on that, Nadem? You know, a right-footed left-back? I think, I think it depends because we have seen times where Cancelo will go outside, other times when he does come inside. But then also, I think for the fluidity that City have, I think look back to that Wolves game. And I think you had Phil Foden and possibly Erling Haaland set, going out wide and setting balls for De Bruyne, who's gone on the overlap to get across into the box. So it's not necessarily about going for something more traditional in terms of a fullback doing it. It's about making sure that people do it. And another example of someone like that is a Bernardo Silva, his ability to roam and to a sense when somebody needs that extra body. Like someone gets the ball and maybe they're 2v1. You'll see him go out there. You'll see De Bruyne go out there. Sometimes it's a fullback, but there's always somebody because they're quite good at sensing when somebody's in trouble. And at worst case scenario, if there's a 2v1 from that side, look how quickly someone just comes across a little bit. And before you know it, there's a 1-2 that's now set up. Because if one, if one of your players has got two people on them, means there's somebody else on the field who's free. So can you now get the ball to that person and the intelligence that they have, they're very good at it. I would argue that, you know, for Jack, sometimes he can bring a sense of excitement when he gets it. But then the moment he takes a step back, this pace of the game goes and people want to get in his face. And that's why he gets fouled so much because he's always just sort of like dangling the ball there in a manner where it doesn't feel like the attack's building. So the defender is in a position whereby they're encouraged. So I think you could maybe have a 2v1 at that standpoint. But I think for me, like my only thing with City, and this, honestly, it's my only thing, when they play at tempo and try and stretch the game in behind, they're a far better side because it keeps the opposition more honest. It means the back four are constantly worrying, 
kind of, are we too high? Are we too high? So it makes them take a step backwards. And when you take that step backwards, that's Kevin De Bruyne time. That's like Gundogan time and stuff like this. And I think for Jack, sometimes he gets too concerned about getting the ball and moving backwards. He needs to be able to run with the, run without the ball just as much as he's running with it. And when he's like that, he can use his speed, use his strength. And then it's very hard to double team someone once they've just gotten the ball in a sort of manner whereby the game is stretched. So, as I said, I understand the left-back going forward and doing like a traditional overlap to help him, but in the same breath, City is smart enough to just try and mix it up. And at that point, when De Bruyne goes over there, who's supposed to follow him over? Is it going to be your six? Is it your centre-back? You know, these are big questions which you have to ask, which is why they're one of the best teams in the world. And speaking to one of my friends who was at Swansea, I think he played them last season, he said he spent the whole 90 minutes wondering whether he's supposed to go to this person or that person. And whichever decision he made, the ball went to the other guy. So that's essentially the position that they put you in. And did you want to add anything to this? Uh, bit yeah, of the very interesting. It's it's great, great views. And Cancelo is really lucky because I think he's got Bernardo and Bowden most games backing up. You know, I think, you know, for example, if you play him on, on the right-hand side, which happens sometimes, um, it doesn't look as comfortable as Walker. But neither did Akanji yesterday. Because I don't think that the right back at City gets anything like from De Bruyne, from from Mares. Anyone, I think they're far more exposed. And if if I was putting Lamptey on anywhere, I would have put him on the left yesterday, for exactly the reason that Adam said. Because I think initially there was that sort of oh he's on and a bit of enthusiastic uh, possession, and very quickly we snuffed him out. So that didn't quite work out as uh, as planned. So I think Cancelo's got got load in the tank. And liabilities are strong. A strong claim. Um, has he got a mistake in him? Yeah. As John Stones? Yeah. As Ruben Diaz? Yeah. You know, I'm sure Naden made one or two. It's uh, uh, just no, nah, never, never in my years. No, not at all. Of course not. <laughs> no, I think it's you know, but the size of them is the issue always. Like with, you know, like with Edison, any anybody who who's playing in, in that sort of uh, position, you know. People were talking about the, the save he should have made yesterday, and he's probably made one of the best assists you'll ever see from a keeper. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's a bit unfair, uh, that criticism of Cancelo. I like him, he's exciting. And, um, yeah, he seems he seems, I seem to be saying, go on his jaw a lot. So I think he's on the ball and he seems to be going forward when, when he's playing for the Blues, and long may that continue. Well, in the time that we've got left, uh, the, the, the big problem we've got is we're recording this on a Sunday and in two, two days from now, City play Dortmund. And the thing about podcasts is they're not instant, we're not live. So this will date very quickly, but I'm going to ask you about the importance of the Dortmund game now. Um, so if you're listening to this after Tuesday night's game at Dortmund, uh, you're going to think, what on earth is all this about? But, but we've got to talk about it because it's, it's relevant. City go to Dortmund on Tuesday and... Uh, a draw or a win will guarantee top spot in the Champions League group. First of all, is that important? Do you pick your strongest team? Do you go for it? There'll be the yellow wall. There'll be Dortmund, who are not doing quite as well in the Bundesliga as they might have expected to be. Um, might be prioritising other, other ways. They're at home. They've got pride. There's so many different factors into it. Ilkay Gundogan goes back to his former club. Erling Haaland goes back to his former club. Um, let's start with Nadam. I mean, what your Pep Guardiola, you say he can't get into his head, but what, what does he do? Does he pick his strongest team, go for it, try and win it? Or does he, does he think more about Leicester next weekend? 
I think in terms of his overall weaknesses, I think one that would be the case, which thankfully we've not seen, is him trying to play for a draw from the start. You know, I don't think he's capable of doing that because he wants to control possession. If you control possession, you control the game and you've got a better chance of winning it. And I think he understands that going to Dortmund is going to be a tough game. And Dortmund might not be, say, essentially in the best of form in the Bundesliga, but there's still Dortmund at home with a carrot of like, if they win this game, then, you know, there's a chance that they could finish top of their Champions League qualifying group. So it will matter. And for them, like the season's split in half. What, and I'm at the stage where I genuinely believe, like, why would you choose to just rotate or rest certain players and not have the right sort of mentality about trying to win? Whatever side he puts out, he'll be capable of trying to win it. And I don't think it's going to be a case of him putting on, say, three or four youngsters to go and just play in that. If they win the game and then there's that game against Seville at home, maybe you could possibly do it then. But at this point, every game really does matter. And the players themselves, you know, it seems like more people are telling players that they're tired than players coming out and saying that they're tired. And with that, I'd yet to see, I've not seen many players in my career, good ones at least, whoever say, I don't want to play this. I'd rather just sit and watch it from the sideline. It's the Champions League. It's the Champions League a way to brush your Dortmund in a game where if you win it, you finish top of your group. Something which could prove invaluable further down the road because the luck of the draw sometimes is a huge factor. So, yeah, put out your strongest team. The players will be itching to have a good performance to get a great result. And to have, you know, to have a legend, or not necessarily legendary, but have a really important European night. Because for Dortmund, say they've not had the best start to the season domestically, if they beat Man City at home, Imagine the feeling they'll have when they go to their next home game in the league or the next game in the league as well. So why not do the same thing for City and just try and finish off this last period before the World Cup and be perfect? Because then as you say, shake everyone's hand and go away and have some time off, you can say, yeah, that was a very successful opening part of the season. Let's do what we need to do now. And then when we come back, it's all systems go again. Isn't it true to say, though, Nadam, that whether City win, draw or lose in Dortmund, or finish top or second might not actually make any difference because if that draw, when it's made, the the weaker the team that they draw against, let's say City win the group and they draw a second team, that second team actually are the better team of the two in that group. You know what I'm saying? You yeah. just can't guarantee anything. Can Listen, you? it's it's the knockout rounds of the Champions League, but then also it makes a significant difference because you might say the better team of the two finishes second, but then they still finish second anyway. So the fact is, from a form standpoint, they haven't done enough across those six games to put themselves at the top of their group. If you had two teams that were basically on the same points and it goes down to goal difference, then you could argue it's like a very similar performance. But let's say it could be the difference between playing, uh, I think it's Inter Milan or Bayern Munich. Like, who would you rather play? You know, you're leaning, for as good as they are, you'd be leaning towards the Inter Milan over a Bayern Munich. But you only get that luxury of not having to play them if you do what they did, which is to win their group. The teams that will win their Champions League groups are going to be really good sides. Probably the ones who've got that special bit of pedigree and have started the season in great form. The one thing which you don't want to come up against in the Champions League when things aren't going your way are teams in good form. So I'd always be reluctant of saying that it doesn't matter and qualification is the only thing. Because if that was the case, then you'd probably see people sat games, sat these last two games off. But these things matter, even if at least it's for the home leg being the second leg as opposed to the first, because, you know, you want to have some sort of advantage and that's the one that's offered to you. Should you manage to do the business and finish finish first? And it matters to the fans as well, Andy, doesn't it? I mean, you'll be out in Germany, I'll be out in Germany. 
you know, it's costing us money to go there. Um, you don't want to see the team just go through the motions. You, regardless of whether you finish top second or whatever, you want to see a good game, don't you? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, they will know Dortmund what's in store because the the earlier kickoff, Seville, Copenhagen, will have finished. So they will know whether or not they're actually already secure. If there's a draw in Seville, as there was in Copenhagen, then Dortmund really, they don't have to show up, do they? Unless they're just playing for pride. Um, I don't think Guardiola ever throws a, throws a game uh, at this stage. And I think the importance of the, the home leg second game is critical still, even without the away goals rule, because last season, particularly when the draw for the quarterfinal was made, of course, we knew who'd be potentially be playing in the semi-final. <coughs> and, um, you know, Madrid, Madrid, it was. And neither of those games was easy, was it, if you remember? Uh, not at all. And I think that the fact that we, we outclassed Real Madrid at home and crumbled in the last few minutes there. Still says to me that you really don't want any risk in this tournament. You want to be home for that second leg, wherever it's within your, your power to do that. So on that basis, I think Guardiola will go at it full hammer and tongue. He'll want Erling obviously having his opportunity to shine again on a ground he knows very well where I'm quite sure that the Germans will give him maximum respect um, as, as German crowds normally do. So I, I think it's going to be, regardless from City's point of view, but with Dortmund it might be different because they may know already that things are done and dusted um, and they would expect those to beat Seville and they would expect to beat Copenhagen. So it be interesting to see how that, how that sits on Tuesday, but yeah, looking forward to it. Um, it's a very, very noisy place. There'll be drums everywhere and lots of beer and curry burst for a few hours before. Can't wait. Adam? Yeah, I think it's um, it'd be a great game to win because it does give us that opportunity to uh, relax in that last last home game in the Champions League um, or the last game, whether it be home or away. I, I just think we, we need to win it for that. I think it'd be great to have a game where we can rest a few lads in the final game and, you know, start Palmer, um, start a few of the younger lads in that game. I love those sort of games where you just, you know, see what happens. Um, and I think that'd be great to give the lads a bit of a rest to in that final game. I was just looking at, yeah, we're three points above Dorman. So I suppose if we were to draw that game on Tuesday night, then we would, we, we wouldn't have finished top of the group. We'd need to, um, you know, better Dorman's result in that final game. So if we draw on Tuesday, that's still not a great result because it means you've got to put out a decent team uh, to win your final game. Because um, obviously if you lose that and Dortmund win, then, you know, they, they could finish top of the group. So I think it's important we um, we get it sorted on Tuesday. And I think it gives us that confidence um, to be able to go forward into the knockout stages and know we can deal with these big European nights in our new look forward line with a proper striker um, because we don't have as much control as we used to do, like Naden was saying. So um, we need the confidence to know that even with a little less control, we can still deal with those nights, deal with those 10 minute spells where we're not going to be on top. Um, and and, and that'll, that'll give us a confidence, I think, 
that we'll need in the in the knockout stages. So I think it's important we we get a win there. And you know, being top of the group is important. I was just taking a look at the teams that you you look at, like Nathan was saying. So the teams that are second at the moment in those groups: Porto, Inter, Marseille, Salzburg, Leipzig, Benfica. Whereas the teams at the top: Napoli are top in Liverpool's group at the minute, Bruges, Bayern Munich, Tottenham. We can't play Tottenham or Chelsea. Uh, Real Madrid and PSG. So you don't want to be playing those sort of teams. Um, so yeah, I just think it's so important um, to go into that World Cup, um, top of the group, knowing that you've done everything that you need to do. Uh, there's no chinks in the armour and yeah, ready to go. So I think it'll be great. I'm look, really looking forward to the game on Tuesday. I think it'll be an exciting one. We might not win it because on their day they can show up, but um, it'd be great if we could. Well, um, thanks very much to Howard Solicitors, who of course sponsored the podcast. Uh, remember, they've got offices in Manchester and Cheshire, specialising in all, all areas of the law that affect the individual. 0161 872 9999 or howardsolicitors.com. And a big thank you to them for their support. Thanks to Adam and Andy for being the usual brilliant guests that they've been, and to Nadam for being the superstar that he always is. Nadam, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you again soon, and to you too. And uh, so thanks for listening. Don't forget to share, to retweet, to subscribe and all those things. Look at the YouTube vlogs that I do as well. I'll be doing one out on the trip to uh, to Dortmund this week. So uh, check that out. And uh, if you only remember one thing from this podcast, you don't remember any of that, but you remember this one thing. Just remember that it's great to be a blue. See you next time. (laughs) 